shapeshifters. So this is a first. I can't see the microphone. I'm not sure where it is. I hope I'm speaking into it properly. I hope you can hear me clearly. Uh, I'm Bruce Whitfield. This is The Money Show. Our shapeshifters featured this evening with with Karen Neufeld-Krauser. She is the chief executive or the chief excitement officer, she calls herself, at iSlices. iSlices is a company in the beauty space. And the reason I can't see anything is she has shoved two rubbery things on my eyes and we're going to tweet a picture of it soon I feel like an alien and um, they're cold they are feel slightly moist um, this is a product that she's developed over the last 10 years into an export industry into the beauty space my bet is that I'm going to look absolutely no different and I'll still be ugly by the end of this process I've got another three minutes or so to go Karen before you'll allow me to remove the fake cucumber from my eyes a lot of people do use cucumber still don't they Absolutely they do, Bruce, and I'm laughing because <laughs> you do look wonderful, actually. I'm sure I look very pretty. All I need now is a face mask and a towel on my head, and um, the pictures will be used for bribery for years to come. Indeed. Yeah. Um, what was the thought behind it, though? Because, I mean, people use lots of natural uh, lots of natural items like cucumber, for example, in, in, in the beauty industry. Well, I spotted the gap in the market because I was your typical consumer. And if I have a good cry, my eyes would puff for days. And I would even rub raw ice around my eyes to target puffiness and redness. And I thought, you know, there's got to be a better way of of dealing with uh, this issue. And there was nothing on the market uh, back in those days, which was 1999, 2000, um, that effectively in five minutes was your quick fix on those types of symptoms, puffiness, dark circles, redness, tiredness. Um, your eye creams and gels that you rub into the skin were predominantly anti-aging based. And you'd have to wait three months, a good three months to see a decent result. So I decided I would try and find, um, develop the quick fix solution. Is this like Botox for people who are scared of needles? Well, we, it does have some fantastic anti-aging properties and we do have some wonderful before and after photographs and proof that it works. <laughs> um, so we find that people who don't really suffer from eye-related symptoms uh, will feel relaxed, revived, they're a wake-up, they're a relaxation, a bit of me-time pampering. But for those people who suffer from some chronic conditions, which you certainly don't, um, should see a fantastic result even in one use. Um, they look like, because I've now taken them off my eyes and I'm now sitting up properly and my vision's slightly blurry, and you can explain <laughs> to me why that is. Um, they look like, you know, fruit pastels, um, which are covered in sugar. But the, So the sugar sucked <laughs> off the fruit pastel and somebody's put it on the train track and it's squished the green fruit pastel into, a, a, into an oval shape. They're squidgy. They're a little bit sticky. I hope I'm not in, uh, <laughs> impacting their integrity by fiddling with them. But this is a polymer, so it's a kind of a plastic um, that was in development at the CSIR, the Scientific Researchers in Pretoria, 15 uh, years ago? That's correct. 1993, the department um, saw the application of this. We call it a cryogel polymer technology. Um, it's a non-toxic pharmaceutical-grade polymer, and there'd only ever been um, scientific papers uh, written up about this polymer for the potential use as a burn wound uh, system or um, artificial aortas um, for the heart. Uh, but nobody had ever really done anything about it. And the research and development had never actually ever been completed by anybody. And there was no standard method of manufacture. And when I went looking for a technology to underpin this quick fix 
eye treatment uh, gel. Um, this looked like the perfect technology um, to underpin my invention. But what gives you the knowledge? Because you're a marketer by by training. You're not a yes. scientist. You're not a clinician of any kind. What gives you the, the insight into understanding what kind of polymer is going to be, a, be the best delivery mechanism for a beauty product? Well, you don't. Um, I think a lot of entrepreneurs have <laughs> stories of serendipity and fate, yeah. and I have one of those. I literally bumped into a gentleman in Brooklyn Mall Shopping Center, and um, we recognized each other, and he was in the manufacturing game of cosmetics. And I said to him, well, can you manufacture me this eye patch? And he said, well, tell me about it. And I said, well, I can't really because I'm still developing it, and I'm looking for a technology. And he said, what type of technology? And I said, I have no idea, but I'll know it when I see it. And two weeks later, he led me onto the CSR, totally by chance and, and serendipity. But, but there are no chances, there are no serendipity. <laughs> when you're on a path, when you're looking for opportunity, one connects. And the, the more people I speak to, like yourself, who've got into business, who say, boy, did I get lucky. Well, you don't get lucky sitting at home watching Oprah. No. You get lucky going out and burning shoe leather, don't you? Yes, they say you make your own luck, yeah. and it's when opportunity meets preparation, I guess. Okay. Um, so you go to the CSR, you say, you've got these polymers you're not using anymore. Do you mind if I have them? And they say, yeah, sure, it's just rubbish to us. Well, that is kind of what happened. I was I was fortunate at that stage the CSR's mandate had changed. And instead of all of these um, inventions and sciences uh, going to offshore multinational companies abroad and nobody ever locally benefiting from them, there was a mandate at the CSR around that time to try and license technologies to SMMEs, to women in business, to historically disadvantaged individuals. So the timing was perfect. And it was actually a woman. Um, who did her PhD um, on this particular polymer was head of the department and being a woman I guess saw my passion and wanted to give me an opportunity and decided to give me one. So many people then go into their garage or they go into their kitchen and they start cooking or they start prodding or they start fiddling with electrical wires. What was the process you followed with a failed polymer that may or may not work? Because you went and you did 200 days or 200 things or 200 <laughs> I mean just with the most extraordinary patience trying to test the theory that this is the right stuff it was much the same experience because uh, the technology transfer package that I got was a one page laboratory recipe that really didn't have any way um, kind of it was it was actually too basic that was okay. the problem and so I took this uh, recipe to outsource manufacturers all over the country and they all looked at me as if I had come from Mars much like you did with the ice slices on <laughs> and um, uh, nobody wanted to help us or get involved but how, how much risk do you take when you take what may be a brilliant idea to manufacturers across the country mm -hmm. um, because one of the biggest things people say to us I've got this great idea but I don't know who to trust did you just trust I did. You know, I've learned. I think um, I'm a naturally trusting person, which has um, come back to bite me in the past. But what I've learned being an entrepreneur is that ideas don't have any value. It's only when they're a real success that everybody sits up and notices and wants to then start copying or steal or, or take you for a ride. So I often say to entrepreneurs, don't be scared to talk about your idea, to talk to people. Obviously, be wise in it. Um, you know, for me, I wasn't at that point, so worried about the technology. I didn't even understand IP protection at that point, which I now <laughs> do and I exploit. Um, but at that point, I was really a marketer wanting to build myself a brand and, and, and thought I had the energy and passion enough to build it quickly and uh, get this global brand built in a year or two. And sit, sit, it's taken sitting, 20 years. 
It uh, 14 indeed. About yeah. 10 of those development uh, years. Overnight <laughs> success takes a decade. Eh? It does. <laughs> <laughs> and that's one of the great stories that comes through. Uh, uh, what a fabulous story we're hearing this evening from Karen Krauser Neufeld, who's the founder and CEO of iSlices. They jelly like things that I had on my eyes. We've tweeted photographs. It is slightly humiliating. It is alien looking. She's taken this and she's got an export market going. She was producing. We'll find out whether or not she's advanced it from the family property in Midrand with a little home factory. Um, how seriously do people take you when they find out that you're taking a beauty product and you're making it from the back garden? I wonder. Um, I am speaking tonight to Karen Krasen-Newfeld, founder and chief excitement officer at iSlices. It's a small business based in Midrand, Hi, Bruce. Has she got bags under her eyes? I can verify she does not have bags under her eyes. Uh, Where does one get eye slices? In South Africa, we sell them exclusively through beauty salons and spas. Um, not, f- not SPARs, but no. SPAs. Okay. <laughs> SPAs. Right. Um, our export market has two ranges, one for salons and spas and one for um, your FMCG mass pharmacy range. So if you're in uh, France, you could get them in Paris Shop, for example. If you're in Iceland, you could get them in Duty Free and on Iceland Air. So different places in different countries, but in South Africa, spas are our You've thing. created a business out of a back garden. Do you still manufacture in your back garden? N- uh, no, not in a back garden type setup. We're fully GMP compliant. Which we get audited uh, good manufacturing practice. Okay, GMP. Our uh, industry is heavily governed, so especially for export, we have to um, comply with very stringent manufacturing and quality and product registration qu- criteria, which we do FDA registrations um EU registrations, and we get audited quarterly Jeez. on good manufacturing practice, hygiene practices. It's a lot of setup, a lot of paperwork. But when you comply, you protect the consumer and the business. But your initial manufacturing yes. machine was for, made for the food industry because yes. there were no machines that manufactured the sort of devices that you no. wanted to create. We literally went from hand filling in a room or a kitchen using um, a like slow making mu- cooker. Like making muffins and you would add like little molds and you go yes. and, pu- and push the, the gel into muffins. Literally, yeah. those were the experimental years and there was no way to move from that to scale up to mass produce. So our, our facility can produce in terms of gel ovals about 200,000 pairs a month. We're not selling 200,000 pairs a month. You're, you're making, making 10,000? Uh, approximately, yes. Yeah. Um, it's uh, swings and slides. So sometimes sure. more and sometimes a bit less. Depends on uh, if all our customers order all at once, which they usually tend to do. What drives demand for these kinds of products? I mean, is it a seasonal thing? Do people feel a bit more puffy when it's dry? So uh, in Cape Town in summertime, people might be more puffy. In Joburg, it'll be winter. Um, in, in Europe, whenever that is. Um, is it that sort of thing? We, we have seen those types of trends, but not really. You know, the market, uh, we've noticed, for example, Boots in the UK, one of their five major categories of focus for the next few years, one of them is eyes. So people today really struggle continually, whether it's the fluorescent lights or long hours in front of computers or, or traveling frequently or mothers with small kids that are up all through the night. People are struggling continually with their eyes, and it's a focal point on the face. You know, if you look at somebody's 
these eyes, you can see if you've had a holiday, if you're looking healthy or well, um, if you're feeling good or not. And so for most people, it's a permanent concern. So we don't really find seasonal fluctuations. We find them in terms of the holiday periods. So the whole of Europe goes on holiday in August. And and that's when demand spikes, because that's the moment where people have got time to spend on themselves for the first time in the last 11 months. Well, the problem is they're buying them prior to going on holiday. um, And most of the business are are shutting down at that time of year. So we should really have our holiday in August, not December. <laughs> no, absolutely right. Um, the, how many people are you employing? We are full-time 12 um, in the company, which um, is, is quite small. Our manufacturing is almost automated, but we use a lot of outsource uh, people for spikes and outsource companies for various parts. We keep the core manufacturing of the technology in-house from a quality control as well as a secret um, it's like the Coca-Cola secret recipe. Um, it is our greatest barrier to entry because we have the only cryogel manufacturing facility in the world. No, so. but that's it, you see. And that, and, and that becomes the unique, uh, the unique selling proposition. Now, you must get approaches by multinationals who say, we'd like a slice, please. Um, yes. uh, going back to the old NBS adverts, everybody can get their slice. Are you willing to give away a slice? Because you did go on Dragon's Den in Canada, of all places. <laughs> and I want to know how you got there, but also why you turned down a very generous offer. Yes. Um, well, in terms of the slice of the pie, we are collaborating with some big multinationals. So Sephora in the US, for example, they're 700 stores. They're part of the LVMH group. We've just done a so private in that luxury label. space, yeah. Yes, we've just done a private label for them. So the big multinationals are wanting to collaborate on a, a private label perspective. So where we don't build our brand, we collaborate in those distribution channels, which is very exciting. And then Dragon's Den, um, it was an interesting uh, story because our distributor in Canada um, decided this was a fantastic way for her to raise capital for her agency. And I said to her, if you make it through the 4,000 people that get interviewed to make uh, the 150 people to uh, the show, I'll come over and help you because obviously she hasn't got the detailed information on the technology and the IP and the story. And she made it, much to my shock. So off I went to Canada and the dragons turned around about halfway through the two hours I was in the den with them and said, no, we want to invest in you in South Africa. We don't want to invest in the, in the uh, North American agency. And um, that was a bit of a curveball. And I said to them, well, what did they I, offer and what did they want? You know what? My distributor only wanted $200,000, um, right. which, which isn't a lot when you're going for growth capital and trying to expand globally. And at that point, we were already in discussions with the IDC as a partner for more than double that. So, um, you know, we we were going, well, we don't really need it. And also the deal they offered was pretty bad. Um, knowing wanted, we had they, they partners. They wanted to your cash flow. I mean, they were, yes, they, they, they did. They were, under, they were putting you under quite a lot of pressure. So oh, terribly. you said no, thank you very much. Yes. Um, and, and you moved on. The IDC, are they good partners? They're fantastic partners. Absolutely wonderful. They don't get involved strategically or operationally, but they're wonderful support. Um, um, they've got our backs, um, you know, in the entrepreneurial space. I followed them for quite a long time and they've got a reputation for really supporting their investments. So if you run out of money or their businesses or entrepreneurs get into trouble, they're there to bail them out, to help them extend extra capital. We, thank goodness, haven't been in that position. 
but they are great partners. Pablo Fatidis, when he talks about small business, always talks about building an asset of value, an asset you can sell. Uh, is that the plan eventually? Do you, is, that the, is there an exit strategy yet? Yes, I've been challenged on it yesterday at the Technology Top 100 Awards that we've um, uh, entered uh, by the adjudication panel. But our big, hairy, audacious goal was to exit to Procter & Gamble <laughs> in some years to come. And, and their yeah. teams have visited us on international exhibitions around the world. And they've been keeping an eye on us. So we thought, what a fabulous exit strategy. Okay. But I've recently been challenged on that. So we're... We're watching the space. Um, how many countries? 20 at the moment. And I mean, the week round is delicious, I'm sure. It's wonderful, yes. <laughs> it definitely <laughs> helps. <laughs> it's a fabulous story. Local manufacturer doing good and exporting and a brand specialist and taking the very best that South Africa's got to offer and taking it global. Her name is Karen Krauser Neufeld, the founder and the chief excitement officer. Uh, you can hear why of eye slices. And yes, we've tweeted humiliating pictures this evening. Go and have a laugh if you would.